Well, open your Bibles this morning with me to Psalm 39 as we continue the study of the Psalms, with this Psalm being the first Psalm for us to consider in 2024, Psalm 39. Every year as the calendar brings us to January, there is a tradition in many circles to create resolutions for the coming year. Some people will criticize this practice of making New Year's resolutions because for many people, the idea of resolutions brings with it just a temporary change of heart that makes them seem too cliche, too faddish to mention. People jokingly speak of the countless resolutions that everyone makes about having a better health, uh, better life, better eating regiment, finally finishing all those loose ends of the coming year that you have left undone from the year before. And the key resolutions that most people make only find themselves maybe a month later, if that, going right back to everything that they've done before, the same behaviors that they swore that they would never engage in again. True, it's the American theologian Jonathan Edwards who had written a series of resolutions for his own private contemplation that once published gave a certain amount of legitimacy to this whole idea of making resolutions to some people. But overall, to many people, the idea of making resolutions is pointless. It's idealistic. It doesn't really help. However, though the idea of making resolutions might be laughable to some people, The central theme that underlines the desire to make resolutions is no laughing matter. And I say that because even though January is no different than the months that surround it, there is something in the human heart that longs to use this changing of the calendar to seek change in our lives. Most everyone senses that change is what we need, that change is what we're driving at, that the desire for change is what lies at the bottom of all those resolutions, whether you make them out loud, write them down or not. You see, for many people, we don't want to remain the way we are. For many people, we don't want to pretend that the way we are is the way we want to be. Instead, we see our lives and how we live them, and we know that without change, nothing will change. We will remain the same. And we understand that if we were ever to be the man or woman that we've envisioned that we should be, then there must be a point in time where we decide once and for all that something has to give, that something has to change, that something has to push us toward this evolution of being a better person. And I bring this to your attention not because... This is the first message of January 2024 for Join Heirs, where one might anticipate that I would actually bring an address about making resolutions for this coming year, but also because change is at the heart of the psalm that we are going to look at this morning, Psalm 39. Not change in the sense of making resolutions necessarily, but change in the sense that the believer understands to be repentance. The change of repentance, the change of turning away from sin and turning toward God. 
People don't speak in terms of New Year's repentance. I don't think you probably hear that that often. Instead of New Year's resolutions, New Year's repentance doesn't seem to be too catchy of a phrase because it doesn't seem that when you really deal with your life that it's too serious if it's merely a resolution. But when you come to the Scripture and you study what God has provided for us there, you will notice that repentance is paramount. Repentance is important. Repentance is essential. Resolutions are what I promised to do one day. Repentance is what I am doing today. Resolutions are an annual expression of wanting change where repentance is an ongoing working out of our salvation that produces change. And so without wrangling over terms, I wanted to address with you this morning our need to use this time of year to seek change in our lives by going to the Word of God and looking at the Psalms to reflect back to us the struggle that countless believers have gone through throughout thousands of years. I want to go to the Psalms with you today and look at King David's desire for change so as to use this time to glean from his writings some very personal, very important ways that we deal with this need for repentance in our lives. And so to teach us the truth. And I want you to notice as I read to you Psalm 39, how everything King David is about to mention to us here is illustrating for us his reaction to God's chastening. His reaction to God's chastening for his sin. This is David's response, Psalm 39, to God's disciplining him for his unrepentant sins. And what you're going to notice with me, hopefully, is how the source of this unrepentance is seen and how he used or needed to use his mouth. His mouth. Listen as I read Psalm 39. For the choir director, for a Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will keep watch over my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will keep watch over my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute with silence. I even kept silent from speaking good and my anguish grew worse. My heart was hot within me. While I meditated, the fire was burning. Then I spoke with my tongue. Yahweh. Cause me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely every man, even standing firm, is altogether vanity. Selah. Surely every man walks about as a shadow. Surely they make an uproar in vain. He piles up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I hope in? My expectation is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the wicked fool. I've become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. Remove your plague from me. Because of the opposition of your hand, I am wasting away. With reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity, you consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is vanity. 
Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry for help. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a foreign resident like all my fathers. Turn your gaze away from me, that I might smile again before I go and am no more. What a profound piece of literature we see here in the scriptures, a a piece of inspired text that moves our hearts to think about this chastening. Now this morning I want to guide you through just a very short time in Psalm 39. I want you to see four reactions here in this text that I just read. Four reactions to God's chastening. Four reactions or responses to God's discipline for sin that illustrates the believer's journey toward repentance. And I think it's important that we contemplate this together. And let me kind of set this up for you, and then we'll go back and look at them individually. But first, you're going to see in verses 1 and 2, God's chastening can encourage superficial silence. You'll see in verses 3 through 6, God's chastening can grant spiritual perspective. You'll see in verses 7 through 11, God's chastening can produce substantial confession. And then lastly, verses 12 through 13, God's chastening can promote spiritual boldness. And it is my prayer this morning that each one of these areas of response that came to David as he was being chastised by God and discipled by God and disciplined by him, it will give you clarity to every believer here as you deal with God's chastening for today. So let me begin by saying that what you have here in this psalm, if you noticed, is very personal. It's a very personal response that David has to what God is doing. Yes, eventually what David wrote here was made into a song. It was used in ancient Israel's public worship. But before this psalm was a part of the liturgy of God's people, this was a journal entry in his life, the life of God's anointed. And because it is so personal, because it is so incredibly private in many senses to us, because it's so real and it's so open and uncensored, we forget that this was a hymn that the early Hebrews would chant together as a part of their regular time of worship. Really, this is a monologue before God, a monologue in the earshot of the people of God that chronicles David's road back to God. Now, the superscription tells us that eventually it was dedicated to the choir director named Jeduthun, even though it is a psalm of David. Psalm of David meaning he is the author, and Jeduthun is the one to whom this is dedicated. And the expression for Jeduthun, uh, also according to Jeduthun, is the title of Psalm 62 and Psalm 77. It's thought to be referring to a man in 1 Chronicles 16.41 who, who was one of David's chief musicians. Now, other people say that it's actually just the noun word that means confession, which is certainly also apropos for what it is that we have here. But regardless, this dedication in the superscription doesn't illuminate anything for us to grasp in terms of the history behind it. So to understand what is going on here, we need to dig into the text itself. More than just a corporate hymn that is being sung, this psalm is a private soliloquy to be understood. 
And what we need to understand is how David's reactions here to God's chastening tell us the story that we're supposed to learn. Now, the first reaction to God's chastening, the first response, if you will, to God's discipline for sin that illustrates this believer's journey towards repentance is, number one, if you're taking notes, God's chastening can encourage superficial silence. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look with me, verses 1 and 2. Again, I said I will keep watch over my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will keep watch over my mouth as with a muzzle, while the wicked are in my presence. I was mute with silence. I even kept silent from speaking good, and my anguish grew worse. Now, we can't be positive about what sin it is that David's talking about here. And it isn't ultimately important for us to know. In fact, sometimes making the sin itself less specific for us to understand um, kind of allows us as the reader to fill in the blanks with whatever it is that's going on in our life to try to see the similarities. In other words, to keep David's sin veiled in some ways allows us to place our sin in his place so that we live vicariously through it is what he is saying. But what we do know about this sin is that it was a result of David's mouth. David's mouth. Verse 1 tells us that he didn't want to sin with his mouth, that he wanted to keep watch over it. And yet, what he really wanted to say, if you notice, was still burning in his heart. He was in anguish. He was, verse 3, hot within his soul. He was burning inside. So before we get deep into the text, let's first make the observation that Regardless of whether or not David spoke out with his mouth, the sin he dealt with was still in his heart. Is that fair? It's still in his heart. Whether I speak it or not, it still resides in me. Though here we're going to see David speaking with his tongue and his mouth and being silent and mute, the truth is that we're dealing with the restraint of speaking and the restraint of speaking is just the surface issue. It's just what is happening on the outside. And why I say that is this first reaction to chastening is a superficial silence. I'll unpack that in a second. It's it's not exactly the whole thing, the whole response that's needed. You can keep your mouth shut. Many of us should. Uh, You can commit yourself to never allowing anyone to ever catch you expressing your sin verbally. But that is just a surface kind of repentance, if you will, because the real issue is the heart. The real issue is the heart. Our Lord Jesus speaks of this truth in Matthew 15, 18, when he says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And it's from the heart that defiles a man, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. So the sin that David is dealing with on the surface has to do with what he's saying out of his mouth. But the reason he says what he says, the sin issue that is underlining his speech is a whole different thing. You can convince me to never speak again. 
You can put your finger into a dike and pretend that the problem is fixed. But the pressure behind the dam will grow and grow until eventually the wall will shatter and the flood will come. In other words, you can be silent all you want, but that doesn't lead you to repentance necessarily. That's why I call the silence superficial. It might be necessary, but it's only a band-aid on an artery. Now, before we unpack this thought, please note that the Bible has a whole lot to say about restraining your mouth. And many of us know this. Your mouth needs to be restrained against sinful speech. So you can't say, well, keeping silent about my sin doesn't address the main issue of my heart, so I'll just keep talking. (laughs) Because that's not helpful either. I say that because a man or woman who doesn't bridle their tongue and some serious sin is significant in and of itself. I say this, Psalm 34, 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Proverbs 13, 3, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 21, 23, He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. James 1.26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. James 3.6, and the tongue is a fire. Back to what I was saying, the tongue is a fire, the world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members, James 3.6, as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. James 3.8, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless evil and full of deadly poison. There's so much more, 1 Peter 3.10 For the one who desires life to love and see good deeds must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. (coughs) Proverbs 17, 28. Even an ignorant fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered understanding. So David, verse 1, is right to keep watch over his tongue, to muzzle his mouth. But there's much more to the story than just that. Verse 9 tells us that one reason David became mute in relation to his speech is because it is you, O God, who have done it. You're the reason I'm not speaking because you're the reason I'm in the predicament I'm in. What had he done? Verse 9 says, you have done it. He has created the circumstances in David's life that compel him to be quiet. God was the one who had chastened David. God was the one who was discipling and disciplining David for his sin. And therefore, any defense that David might give off in front of the wicked that are in his presence, according to verse 1c, would seem to blame God for his predicament and what's happening to him. So he decided, I'm just going to shut up. I'm going to keep my mouth closed because if I open it up in the presence of the wicked, they will look at me and say, aha, where's your God now? This is the God that's doing this to you? 
How can you speak? It's sure that when David was before these wicked men, that they must have said, David, why are you so quiet? Why are you keeping so silent? It should be odd to us that a man like David, a king, a man who is committed to leading verbally his flock, would ever resort to silence to make a point. And I say that because if there was one issue that godly men must learn to deal with, it is the issue of being too silent. Too silent. Remember Psalm 32, and we learned that David had told us that in verse 3 of Psalm 32, I kept silent about my sin. When I kept silent about my sin, that my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Remember, my vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So the virtue, listen to this, of being silent isn't always a virtue. Sometimes a leader must speak, especially men. Years ago, I came across an article that was so helpful for me. It's called The Marks of Manhood by Al Mohler. And in that piece, he makes the following statement. It's a long quote. It's an important quote. And he says this particular trait about being a man is to be learned and appreciated and committed to. And this is what he says. He says, an important mark of being a man is possessing the verbal maturity sufficient to communicate and articulate as a man. Listen to this. This is helpful. Here's a striking phenomena of our times, he writes. Many adolescent boys and young men seem to communicate only through a series of guttural clicks, grunts, and incoherent language that can hardly be described as verbal. A man must be able to speak, to be understood, and to communicate in such a way that will honor God and convey God's truth to others. Parents must work with boys, requiring them to speak to articulate and to learn respect for language. This respect must extend to an inability to enunciate words so that the articulation is clear and communication succeeds. This skill must be learned at the dinner table and family conversation and in one-on-one talk, especially between father and son. In fact, I just had this conversation with one of my sons yesterday. Beyond the context of conversation, a boy must learn how to speak before larger groups, overcoming the natural intimidation and fear that comes from looking at a crowd, opening one's mouth, and projecting words. Though not all men will become public speakers, every man should have the ability to take his ground, frame his words, and make his case when truth is under fire and when belief and conviction must be translated into argument." Isn't that helpful? It's very helpful. And if you failed to do that as you were raising your children, grandkids, grandkids, right? Teach them to talk. Teach them to speak, especially the young men. So being a verbal man and not, as Mueller says, being a boy that kind of just grunts with incoherent sounds is imperative. And it's imperative for believing men especially. 
to express yourself as a leader and as a husband and a father and a deacon and an elder is what parents should be aiming at with their sons. But as we're going to find out, there is a time for silence as well. We know that from Ecclesiastes 3, 7, right? There's a time to be silent and a time to speak. These are the cycles of life. But King David here in Psalm 39 had made a resolution. He had made a resolution. He was resolved not to sin with his tongue by keeping silent and in his mind protecting the reputation of the God who is chastening him. I won't talk to protect you, O God for what it is that you are doing to me. God was disciplining David over his undisclosed sin. And though he did not want to add insult to injury by speaking about David's heart, David's heart still burned inside. So sometimes, just to point out, when God is merciful enough to correct us in our sin because of his love for us, as Hebrews tells us, our immediate reaction might be to shut up. There is a time to be quiet. There is a time to be silent. There is a time when you are so overwhelmed by the implications of your own sin that to speak seems to undermine the whole process. To realize that the best thing we can do in response to God's chastening is to refuse to compound the fracture by opening our mouths and inserting our foot We realize that complaining or arguing is futile, so we bite our tongues and we stay silent. But that silence is not always all that it appears to be. How do I know that? Because verse 2 comments on this truth, saying that this silence not only prevented David from speaking sinful things, but good things as well. I refuse to say anything concerning your chastisement of me, O God, and I refused in the same breath to not say anything about anything, even to give you glory. So as David wrestled with his sin, the sin that could be hidden from the wicked people around them, the wicked people who were accosting him, he noticed that his silence in some way, therefore, was superficial. What do I mean by superficial? It just addressed the part of the issue and not the whole issue. He noticed that his silence was putting a cork in his mouth and preventing him from not only complaining about God's discipline, but also stopping him and preventing him from commenting about God's grace. And so, verse 2, he says, his anguish grew worse. The mute are as full of sin as the talkative. The mute are as full of sin as the talkative. The silent man can be as full of sin as the shouting man. And so perhaps the cure for his sin was not just evaluated by his silence, but the cure was measured by his repentance of his heart. So whether he spoke or whether he was silent, His anguish would be dissolved because his true sin against God would have to be dealt with. No, his silence was good, but it wasn't completely good. Why? Again, verse 9 tells us that the reason he was quiet was because if he answered the question 
that those wicked men around him could ask him, he would have to tell him that the reason that he was the way he was is because Yahweh had done it. Now, in the future, we're going to dwell on this plague that he speaks of, this plague that he suffers with, this sin from which David was being chastised. It was a chastisement that he says was responsible for his, verse 10, wasting away. The reason I'm wasting away is because of it. But at this point, it's enough to say that he knew that something needed to happen to him, so at least he knew he could shut up. If you go back to Psalm 38, which is just the psalm on the next page, you'll see a very similar idea about David's situation, about how he felt about God's chastisement. And you'll see it in the very beginning, eight verses. Psalm 38, O Yahweh, reprove me not in your wrath and discipline me not in your burning anger. For your arrows have pressed deep into me and your hand has pressed down upon me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities go over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds stick and, not, and rot because of my folly. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day for my loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am faint and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. And skip down to verse 13. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no reproofs. For I wait on you, O Yahweh. You will answer, O Lord, my God. So I want you just to think through the relationship here between Psalm 38 and Psalm 39, but also I want you to see that David experienced chastisement as he went through the experience of being disciplined by God for what he had done. His silence was not a completely good silence. It was a superficial attempt to put a band-aid on what he couldn't control, but at least it showed that he's grappling with his sin. He's grappling with what at least he could control. He could control whether or not he speaks, but he could not control what he had done or the forgiveness that he needed. So he begins here, his first resolution of life to stop doing what he had been doing and cry for help for what he couldn't do, which was forgive himself. He needed forgiveness, and we cannot forgive ourselves. That's something that you hear as a common expression in today. I just can't seem to forgive myself. I I just can't forgive myself for what I've done. Well, friend, the, the issue is not whether you forgive yourself. The issue is whether God has forgiven you. And so David deals with this. It's an interesting point that I find in many people's lives that Sometimes when a man is silent, you can be thankful. Many women and wives are. Sometimes when a man is silent, you think to yourself, oh, thank you, Lord. He's contemplating his actions. He's, he's fully devoting himself to examining his own heart when the truth is he's really just watching the game. And so his silence is not all that you might think. So sometimes it is good to question a man's silence. Why are you being so quiet? Why are you so reserved? 
Why are you so pulled back into yourself and not engaging with those around you? Could it be that something is in your heart that prevents you from speaking that which you don't want to be known? There's a second reaction to God's chastening here. And I'm just going to barely speak of this because of our time. And I'm going to fully develop this in the week to come. But the second reaction is we see not only is it that God's chastisement can react, you can react with a a sense of silence, even if it's superficial. But secondly, he responds to God's chastisement with a spiritual perspective, a spiritual perspective. And we see that in verses three through six. David goes on, my heart was hot within me. While I meditated, the fire was burning. And then I spoke with my tongue. Yahweh caused me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing before you. Surely every man, even standing firm, is altogether vanity, Selah. Surely every man walks about as a shadow. Surely they make an uproar in vain. He piles up riches and does not know who will gather them. It's an interesting issue in our lives, isn't it, that as we go on and as we wrestle with God's gracious chastisement, We think beyond our own lives. We think beyond the immediate and into the future. And what we have here in this section of David, he is not only now silencing himself, hoping that that will help in terms of his response to God, but now he also sees that in this chastisement, he is granted perspective, a spiritual perspective, a perspective that I think many of us can learn from even here and now in this time of New Year's resolutions. We start to see the bigger picture. We start to see our lives and how they seem, not only just to our immediate family and our friends, but to God. We only have so many years left to us. I hope you know that. They're empty years unless you fill them with good things. And you want to make your life worthy of the Lord. You want to make your remaining days, even as you grapple with your sin under the loving care of God, in a way that will be encouraging to those around you. How many years will go by with your heart not dealing with your sin before God? It's a very, very vital and indisputable truth that when all is said and done, your life is but a vapor. It is so important that the steam coming off of your grande coffee that you think is such an invitation toward being a connoisseur is just really a visible sign of how quickly your life will fade away. I remember years ago, I made a connection between this fading life and what I call blinks. I've heard it since mentioned by many people, but I never read it. I thought it out of my own experience. I said this morning when I woke up, it was 1980, and I was 17 years old walking across to get my diploma from Edison High School in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then I blinked, and I was in Hollywood, and I was in front of a camera filming movies that soon would be forgotten. 
And I blinked again, and I was in seminary with my first son being born, holding Lori's hand in her moments of labor. And then I blinked again, and I was teaching and preaching to people over the years as my three sons run up to me, and the oldest tells me it's time to go to his kindergarten graduation. And that was just this morning. (laughs) If I believe my calculations are right, I have three more blinks. And then it's done. I'm done. God has painted us into a corner with the knowledge that He is the one, the only one, that can satisfy your soul and give you peace and forgive your sin. And He determines all things and all moments in your life so that you might loosen your grip on that which tells you that You are the sole captain of your future. That you are the one who is in charge of your destiny. Instead of deepening your resolve to live in the moment now more profoundly, more deeply, searching for truth, searching for God's revealed revelation, knowing that your blinks matter in his book, A grief observed, C.S. Lewis once wrote, but suppose that what you are up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. He's talking about why we tend not to think about the passing of time. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the physician, the more he will go on cutting. If he yielded to your entreaties, If he stopped before the operation was complete, inferring that you're saying, please, no more cutting. If he stopped, all the pain up to that point would have been useless. What do people mean when they say, I am not afraid of God because I know he is good? Have they never been to a dentist? End quote. He's expressing to us what happens as we are being confronted by God, chastised by God, and yet at the same time as we wrestle with what David says here was this fire in him, this idea of his need to see his life from the bigger picture, that we go back to realizing that we are just a whisk, we are just a handbreadth, as verse 5 says, you have made my days as henbreaths, and my lifetime as nothing, meaning that without you, I am not. I don't know whether William Shakespeare knew this psalm or had these words in mind, but when he penned Macbeth, Act 5 of the play, he expressed it in this way. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day, to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying Nothing. Act 5, scene 5. 
So what's the point? There is a time, and I think this New Year's opportunity is upon us, to contemplate God's chastisement, which is good, God's discipline, which is purposeful and important, and realizing that though it may quiet us and resolve us in some ways to make some limited changes in our life, the big picture is that God's chastisement also grants a spiritual perspective about the days ahead of us, the days that are to come. What we have now are two other important points And I want to develop it. I want to develop it in such a way. I wish I could come to the place, and I say this sincerely, where I could just give you one sermon on a a psalm. But Lori has informed me that's not going to happen. Because by the time I get started, it's, it's over. And the time that I want to continue more, it's too late. But what I want to leave with you as we look at Psalm 39, part two next week, is that I want you to think of what Hebrews tells us in terms of what it is that God is doing in your life if right now you are suffering, if you are dealing with pain because this new year has brought to your mind the fact that God is not done with you yet and he deals with you in many different ways, sometimes those ways that are so difficult to comprehend. The, the, psalm, the, the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says it so beautifully in this way. You have not resisted chapter 12, verse 4, to the point of shedding of blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he flogs every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. We had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live, for they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our benefit, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But for those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." This is going to be the fruit of what we see in Psalm 39. And I want to send that to you this morning as a a challenge and as an encouragement. A challenge, first and foremost, to be thinking about this new year, not as a resolution, but as a blink. And I want you to think of this new year as an opportunity for you now to deal with how God is dealing with you. And to see if, as we see in Psalm 39, that your responses to his discipline, his chastisement as a loving father, square with what it is that David encountered. And that if it does, you might know that you are on the right road for 2024. Let's pray. Father, your word is so rich and so deep to even put a toe into the sea of your great... Revelation seems almost futile.
but we have stepped into this wonderful psalm and we are waiting in its waters because we are fascinated, Lord, by change, our desire to change, our desire to no longer be that which we are, our desire once and for all without any excuses and without any delay to become the man and woman or child that needs you and that responds to you knowing that our days are passing by so quickly that what is only left is you. And what we must always ground ourselves in is the belief and the understanding that you love us, that what you are doing in our lives is for our good, that there is not a wasted moment in any one of our dilemmas or of our trials because you are refining us and working out our salvation for good. What you have started, you will complete. And so press this upon our hearts this morning and give us great grace as we fellowship even now and return next time for more. In Christ's name we pray, amen.